right. Good morning and welcome to Jordy Happiness Hero. Milani, thank you so much for being here. It is 5.30 a.m. where I am. What time is it where you are? It is 9.37 here. 9.37. Yeah. Oh, I guess 5.37 here. So Yes, yeah, that's terrible. Those are not <laughs> human hours. Uh, usually not for me. I am actually not a morning person, but for an interview, I'm willing. Absolutely. No, thank, thanks for making time. I appreciate it. Sorry about the other day. Oh, I'm not even concerned. I am just glad that I get to have this interview with you and to get things going. And I, Tulani is one of my oldest friends, and he is also the founder of the Rad Black Kids, which is a clothing line that is fantastic. Um, and I'll let him introduce himself and talk about that because he knows more about it than I do. But Tulani, I want you to introduce yourself and tell us three random facts about yourself to help us all get to know you a little bit better. So my name is Chulani Gazimbi. Yes, Jordan is one of my oldest friends. I uh, started a company in 2014 uh, after I finished my longboards 2015 and then 2020, we started mm -hmm. doing more stuff like shoes. And in the next few weeks, we're gonna start introducing eyewear. So it's been, a, it's been quite a ride. Awesome. And I did, it did cut out for us a little bit there with the, I don't know if it's the internet connection or what's going on, okay. but I, I don't know what all we missed, but we, you talked about longboards is how you started and then you moved oh, into sure. clothing and now you're moving into eyewear. Um, yeah, so, yes. Longboards, clothing, shoes, which have grown pretty quickly and then eyewear, which is coming next. Awesome. All right. And then I want to know three random facts about you, Tuani. That's my, because I live in the South now, the South's starting to come out in my vernacular. Where do, you, where do you live in the South? Which state? North Carolina. Hey, yo, that's a, that's a big <laughs> move, though. That's a little bit of a difference, this. Yes, uh, yes. Definitely so, different. Wow. So three random facts. One, I was born in Zimbabwe. Uh, two, I don't really need glasses. I'm kidding. That's a lie. Uh, <laughs> I was like, yeah, that's uh, not true. <laughs> <laughs> and the third fact is, uh, uh, I, I, I think I'm in, I, I'm, I, I'm very, very, very good at shopping. Like I'm freakishly good at shopping. Like I, I am so, and this is not shopping with like, you know, full price. Stuff. I'm very, very, very good at finding prices and shopping and knowing brands and whatever. So, yeah. This is true. That's a skill you've always had. Even when we were our little young baby college selves, I remember you trying to shop for me because I had no shopping skills. So my shopping skills have improved though. I have to say, I have to say that that's true. Oh, I think we're frozen again, T. Pause for a second again. Yeah, just for a second. Did you hear everything? Uh, you you said that's a skill you've always had, and that's where it cut off. Yes, it's a skill you've always had because when we were little babies in college, you used to try to shop for me because I had no shopping skills or style sense. But I remember. You know, you know what's <laughs> funny is uh, I think I think in another universe somewhere, I take people shopping because a, a buddy of mine I took her shopping the other day, and I haven't done that in years. Mm -hmm. I haven't consulted on someone's wardrobe in a very long time but it's it's very fun you know it's very very fun yeah i don't know if you remember that but you did take me I shopping <laughs> oh i remember oh brother all right so 
he is an expert shopper, and I think that contributes largely to his style sense and owning his own brand. And what has been on your mind recently, Tulani, that you just now that you have a little platform that you want to share with the listeners? All right. All right. So my last question was, what has been on your mind recently? You have this platform that you want or that you hope to share with our listeners. I I, I don't know. I, I think, um, you know, Jordan, you follow me on Instagram. And I think the one thing that I've been thinking about recently is just uh, everything that's going on in the world and, you know, like how it affects, how it affects everybody. I mean, I think there's a few issues that are of serious, serious concern. And I think a lot of them are political issues, but I, I feel as though one thing that always happens when people reach a political intersection is that there's always so many opinions, which are okay. Everyone's okay to have their own opinion. But um, the one thing that ends up happening is, is I think by virtue of your tone and by virtue of what you say, you automatically attract half the audience and then you automatically repel the other half of the audience. I think maybe a, a better way of putting it without going so much into detail of like politics is I feel like compassion needs to be reevaluated, you know? I really feel as though like we're living in an age where whether it's a big actor like a country or a small actor like an individual, I think people really need to reevaluate what it means in a non technocratic way to like just care for another person or just be invested in how another person sees the world or how the world affects the other person. And so I think, yeah. you know, I think maybe sometimes when we think that we, we look at something politically, I think maybe it's because we actually see the human failings with that thing. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a hundred percent true. And I like that lens of compassion because I think a lot of people forget to use that lens when they're looking at viewpoints that maybe are unfamiliar to them or that are different from them. I think that it's easy to forget that lens of compassion. Yeah, so I another so. question. Go, oh, ahead, go ahead, sorry. No, I was just going to say, it's, it's like, don't you think it's kind of like we grew up in like Pleasantville? And like mm -hmm. now you look around and it's just like all hell and chaos. And it's like so crazy because I didn't think that those days were the good old days. Do you know what I mean? But like not in just our own lens of how we saw the world, but in the lens of how the world interacted with us. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if I would call Eastern, Southeastern Idaho Pleasantville necessarily, <laughs> but I totally, <laughs> I totally get where you're coming from. Yeah. Uh, all right, so you are a designer, you are an artist, so I want to know some of your favorite artists that have inspired your work and inspired you as a person. Um, I think first and foremost, if you go to any American uh, museum, you'll find an African section, and there's Africa typically is commodified, and in terms of our art is commodified because all of our art is typically grouped by region and never by the artist's name. So my first artistic influences are all the unnamed artists who are in uh, American and Western museums, because it's not just an American thing. I was in Amsterdam lately at the museum, saw the same thing. Um, so that's first. Second is uh, Art Nouveau is very, very big for me. Um, um, so that movement is very, very influential. That's the late 1890s. 
Um, Toulouse Lautrec is my favorite artist of all time. Um, uh, pardon the term, but his nickname was the Little Man. Uh, and then, of course, you know, Monet is very, very influential. Impressionism is very influential. Uh, Monet, Cezanne, Pissarro, all of those guys are very influential. But I think for me, um, classical European art really resonates a lot with me um, because I think living here and traveling here a lot has made me realize that their um, their past and what they did artistically um, and how they come up was so difficult. It kind of resonates with like mine. Um, last two summers ago, I took a road trip through Southern uh, France and stumbled upon this town called Arles where Van Gogh lived and then actually drove past a bridge and saw a bridge that he painted stopped at this bridge and there was a plaque showing that he painted this bridge. So that's what I mean in this relative. So Van Gogh is also influential. And then there's also, you know, the new school, the contemporary artists. There's Cleon Peterson is, um, is an artist I like. He's considered uh, contemporary, I guess. Um, who else? Mike Lee is, a, is an artist I really, really love. He uses hyper-realistic, like he does hyper-realistic orbs and shapes, and they look like families. I um, really like him. Kehinde Wiley, I, I really, really like too. Um, my favorite artist to listen to talk in the world is Alexandra Grant. I really like her work too. But yeah, long list. I like it. I like a lot of influences it reminds me of going to the met in new york city i could spend days days at the met and i'd prefer to go by myself so i don't have to worry about anybody else so that i can just spend as much time as i want just you know wandering the exhibits and just taking it in uh the last time i was it's, at the met yeah last time i was at the met actually there was a an exhibit it was right when you walked in and you go down to the right and it was a clothing exhibit and they called oh. it like costume. So I was confused at first when I went to it. I thought the costume exhibit would be like from film or TV or something like that. That's not sure. what it was. But I went in and like, as I was looking at all these different clothing, I actually was like, oh, I got to take a picture of this and send it to Tulani. Like, this is pretty uh, cool. No, that's cool. That's uh, <laughs> y you're lucky because that event, it's from those costumes from the Met Gala. So mm -hmm. after the Met Gala sets a theme and then people dress according to the theme. So I'm guessing it might've had something to do with that. But um, a fun fact about the Met is Gertrude Stein mo owns most of the permanent collection. Now, Gertrude Stein, I don't know if you know, was an art collector and she was a writer. And Gertrude Stein single-handedly influenced modern day from you know early 20th century till today. She still influences modern day American art and curation and global art, really. So it's kind of crazy that this lady in like the 20s was buying from these artists in such a way, you know, the, the 1910s, 1900s, whatever. She's buying in such a way where like still now people still go to a museum to see the work that she bought. How crazy is that? It is crazy. And she was hella talented in the Mets. One of my favorite places in the world, actually, that the Smithsonian, all of it. But I haven't been to Europe yet. Well, I've been to uh, Italy. I haven't yes, been all yes. over Europe yet to see yeah. all of the museums because I that's all it's all on my list. Things I oh, want to do. Cool. That's cool. Okay, Tulani, this is an important thing that I need from you is I want to know, because you have a very interesting story. I know a little bit of it. I want you to share with my listeners. Where are you from? I want you to tell your origin story. Okay. So um, yeah, that's a cool question. I was born in Zimbabwe, born in Bulawayo, Zimbabwe. Lived there 
um, well, lived in another town called Shabani, but that's a separate story. Lived there for four or five years after being born in Bulawayo. That's the second biggest city in Zimbabwe. Um, my parents grew up abject poverty. Um, my mom lived in a one-room house. My dad lived in a garage, basically, and they lived on the western side of town. And if you look at, I, I recommend um, you guys to Google the designs of British towns, British colonial towns, because they're all designed in the same way. Um, if you want an insight about that, the people who built the towns, um, the colonists, created the towns in such a way where they lived on the east side. So their big thing was when they drove into work, the sun was on their backs, and when they drove home at night, the sun was on their backs. And so black people basically lived on the west. So my mother, when she was little, would tell us the story all the time when she would walk like 12 kilometers just to go to the library. And it was right at the border of the east. So she used to watch these cars going to the eastern suburbs. And she used to say, you know, one day I'll have a house over there. So my parents, my dad went to university in West Africa, uh, got a couple of degrees. My mother became a nurse. Um, <clears throat> she got a chance to go abroad. She never took it at that time, uh, which would have probably made me surely not exist. But uh, um, anyway, she... Um, became a nurse. My parents were pretty successful growing up. We went to private schools when we were really little, uh, elitist schools. Um, so I owe some of my, you know, I owe a lot of my life to those times. And then anyway, in 1997, I just found this out last year. My mom was with me for a couple of months here and she found out that the economy was crashing. Five years later, she came up with a plan to leave. So my mother left first and my brother left next. And they moved to Idaho. I won't really talk about specifics of what, you know, how they did it. I'll talk about myself mostly, you know. Um, and then a few years later, they managed to get us to the United States. But my father had to go to the embassy for a year just to do the interviews, right? Like round a year. So it was quite a, quite a long time. And then eventually we get our visas. But at that point, the, the currency in our country had crashed so much that basically the money for tickets wasn't really there. So through a series of miracles, frankly, and through like the church, TBH, um, we managed to get tickets to go to the United States. So we go to the United States, my little brother, my little sister and me, and we moved to Pocatello, Idaho. And growing up, we had like a very different life, you know, like my parents had done pretty well. We had hired help at home, you know, we had all these things. And then when I moved to the States, we were living in abject poverty. Like we were pretty, pretty poor. I remember one of my first weeks in America in Pocatello going to a soup kitchen. That was like, that was a shock. That was like a, a real serious shock, you know? And um, so high school was kind of punctuated with, you know, hand-me-downs and, you know, not necessarily fitting in. I thought I was a cool dude in Zimbabwe, but I guess coolness doesn't translate. You know what I mean? So, so here we are. <laughs> so then, uh, so after after high school, then moved to, uh, well, stayed in Pocatello and um, well, gone into Idaho State. And you know, the crazy thing was, is I wasn't actually supposed to go to Idaho State because I did debate. That's why I changed my accent in high school. I changed my accent so I could do debate. And I did a tournament one time in... At Idaho State, um, almost won the tournament. My coach sent an email to the Boise State coach for debate, and they offered me a scholarship on the spot. 
He was like, wow. whatever you need to come here, we'll give you the money so you can go. And I ended up turning it down. I regret it till today. <laughs> Shout out to student debt. But then, <laughs> um, yeah, like after that, I uh, so went to university in Idaho. And then years and years and years later, we were friends. We hung out. was an RA at school. That was really, really great. And then about a semester or two, I was actually a semester before I graduated, went to a job fair. And it was Melaleuca. Remember Melaleuca? Like Melaleuca yeah, is the prize, the prize of the state. So I was in marketing at that time. I've been studying architecture and marketing. But architecture, you have to go to another school, yada, yada. So I went to this job fair. And this guy was wearing one of the suits I used to wear in high school in debate. And he was an assistant manager and he was talking about how good his life was, how lucky he was, blah, blah, all this. It was a crazy time. So I'm listening to this guy give the speech and I'm looking at the suit because I think in my head, I'd always figured that the older you get and once you graduate school, you can buy like nice tailored suits, right? So I was looking at this guy's suit and I was like, it's the same suit, shirt and tie combo that I had in debate in high school. But this guy was like, yo, I'm mad successful. Like I'm not disparaging the guy by any means. But it just meant it wasn't like commensurate with my dream and how I saw myself or how I wanted to see myself one day. So anyway, so crazy part is I talked to this guy. I, you know, oh, I know he's talking to us. He's giving the speech and he says, I make so much money a year. And he was talking about how lucky he was to be making money and how lucky he was to have the job. And then at the end of the lecture, he says, I make 30K a year now hear me 30k a year really lucky i just saw that and my future flashed before my eyes like this like like just like that and yeah. i saw that if this guy's lucky to be making 30k what the hell's gonna happen with me <laughs> so i literally just decide you know what maybe it's time to actually take control of what my dreams are and maybe it's time to move so mm, i, I decided I decided to leave Idaho State. At the time I was dating this this young lady in LA, moved down to Los Angeles for a while. And then we found a school together in New York and we went to school in New York. And I was just like, look, like if I really wanna be about it, you know, I gotta like do it. I gotta like take the chance. So yeah, so that's the story. Yeah, I like that. And I like that you were brave enough to to venture out. Um, I have a quote of the day on every episode and I forgot to share it. So I'm going to take this time because I feel like it was a perfect segue into it. Here's my quote of the day. And this is by C. Joy Bell C. I don't know who that is, but I found this quote and I like it. We can't be afraid of change. You may feel very secure in the pond that you are in, but if you never venture out of it, you will never know that there is such a thing as an ocean, a sea. Nice. It's I was talking to a friend about that the other day. I was talking to two friends that said something very impactful. One friend says to me that, you know, the willingness of change comes from a person not being able to do a thing anymore. They have to reach the limit. So that's one counter. And then the second counter was talking to a friend about her parents and about how she feels so different from her parents because living in the city I live in now, there's a lot of expats, you know, and immigrants, right? So you meet a lot of people who are now noticing their relationship with their parents in the various countries are becoming fractious. And one of the reasons why is because, you know, change as it relates to travel or just generally change as it relates to going to university, change as it relates to meeting other people, change as it relates to anything, 
is 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 something that undoubtedly changes you you know like it impacts who you are and so sometimes yeah one of the scariest things about change is you kind of shake the people off that are around you you know but you don't mean to you know that's true it's very very true it's like i love all the people and i think that this is some a character trait of mine or a virtue or i don't know what it is maybe it's a maybe it's red flag i don't know but once i love someone like once you've been a part of my life and like i'm invested in you and i love you like always it doesn't matter how many miles it doesn't matter um time it doesn't matter distance like none of that matters like once i love you i always love you but even if like obviously things change things change yeah. like i'm clear across the country from a lot of the people i know but if i've already loved you at some point in my life like you're you're there you've you've taken that ownership that parcel of land in my heart and you own it forever um and i, I don't i don't know i think it's beautiful because i i think that that's the that's the divine element <clears throat> the divine element is like the human element is the pains of change and trying to understand and contextualize it the divine element though is the element of like what keeps us attached and tied on to those people and that's love right so it's like you know, I, I was watching some movie that said something beautiful that I'll definitely bastardize, but it was saying something to the effect of like, you know, love is proof of alien life, right? Because love mm -hmm. is the thing that outside of time, space and whatever is the thing that keeps people tied together. So I think it's kind of the magic that keeps the glue, you know, it's the glue that keeps everything together, you know? Actually, as that was coming out of my mouth, as I was trying to describe that to you i remembered where that whole idea of like owning a parcel of land in my heart came from it's you when we were in college when we were in college you wrote that to me in you know so like that I was just I, random memory well, that's crazy that's crazy remember that i i think i think that thought is an important one you know because i i feel like um things change a lot you know, like things in, in undoubtedly change, people change, things change. And, and, you know, there's this thing about how we only can maintain so many human relationships at one time. But I think what's wise about hearing that now, because I haven't thought of that in a very long time, but I think what's wise about or what's so profound about hearing that now, calling myself profound, shout out. But uh, <laughs> what's, what's profound about it, I think, is that it's, even though you can maintain this many people, it's almost like the people who've impacted like your heart will always stay there. And I think now that we're older and now that we've experienced loss, I'm sure you've experienced loss, you kind of realize that that's more true than ever, you know, like you lose people. And in the, the space of losing people, you get to understand that some people are just always going to be there, you know, they own that property, you know what I mean? That's true. And during, it had been years, it had been years since I'd seen you or talked to you in person. Like, obviously I follow you on Instagram. I kind of followed your journey from afar, but when I was at my lowest, when I was in the hospital, because I had decided that I could not live life anymore. When I was at that point, I don't know how you knew that I was going through hell. I don't know how, I don't know what happened there. I don't know if it's intuitive. I don't know if you saw something that triggered that, but I got messages from you on Instagram or something on like a direct DMs. messages. And you were like, what's going on? Are you okay? And I remember being like, how does he even know that I'm in this shithole? Oh, 
I just swore on my podcast. I wonder if I have to edit that out. Anyway, I, I think if it's not the F word, I don't have to be explicit. Yeah, no, but, you're okay. No. Don't worry. But you messaged me like, hey, what's up? Are you okay? And I was like, hey, like that was a kind of a powerful thing for me because I was like, it's been years. It's been miles and miles. Like you're across the world for me, but you still noticed and you still cared. And like, that was a powerful thing. I, I, it's not, it's not a big deal. I'll put it like this, right? Um, there's a thing that started happening to me in seventh grade where one day I thought about a random person. I was staying in my cousin's house in another city and I went into town and I hadn't seen this person for years and they're standing across the street from me. Last week, there was someone who I meant to message my cousin and I thought about him and then he just messages me. And then the other day, like I was thinking about, no, yesterday, I swear to you, Yesterday, I'm sitting and I'm looking at this email from this retailer, right? And I'm like, it's been a full seven days since I heard from them. And I need these numbers from them. I'm at the gym. I open up. I'm writing an email. And I'm like, delete. Two minutes later, I get an email from them. So sorry about the delay. I was just thinking about sending you this message. And I don't know what it was. There was something. But then also, it's the fact that I think you posted something and you've always been a bright person and something about it was just a little bit, it was in your stories. So two parts, I thought about you and wondered why. And then the second thing was you posted something that wasn't you. It wasn't in your tone. And of course I'll reach out, man. I care about you. It's like, uh, why wouldn't I reach out? You know, it's like, you know, don't want you to suffer. I think that's the one thing that you realize as you get older is that like, you know, like in some situations, suffering is just highly unnecessary and like the struggles that people go through and you can't really change something for someone, but all you can let someone know is that you're there and you're thinking about them and that they matter, you know? And I think that's really impressive. I think a lot of the time we don't listen to that intuition. We don't notice the things because we're so busy. We're just so busy. And as human beings, I feel like we're very egocentric. And so like our little universe is just what's revolving around us. And so I think it's very profound and very emotionally mature and very, I don't know, a gift to be able to notice and to be able to act upon what you notice because it's not something that everybody does. And it goes back to that compassion lens. Like it goes back to living with the compassion lens. If we are living with a compassion lens, what a, what a beautiful world it could be, you know? It, it It is, but I, I think it's because I was also in a time in my life where, like, nothing had worked. Like, everything I had done in my life was what I thought I wanted for my life. You know, I was living in L.A., you know, I was with somebody, and then we separated. And now I was living in L.A., like, a block from the beach. And I was just struggling to, like, do things like pay rent. And it was, like, the cheapest place I could find, ironically, and it was a block from the beach. Like, and the place I was in for all that time was, like, twelve ninety five, then one day... They gave me a notice to make it like eight, like twenty one ninety five in one month, in two months, sorry, 60 days. And so I find another place that's significantly less expensive. I move into that place and I'm living there and I have all my things. I have a record player I built from 1957. I didn't build it. I just, you know, got it back to working, right? I collected records. I had my dogs. I had my life. And I thought that that's what made me happy, right? I thought that I was at the mountaintop. I thought that this was what I wanted, but the career wasn't really working out right? Life wasn't really working out. I just separated from someone I was with for a very long time. And so I just looked at life and I just thought that like life was this. And so what happened was one day I'm hanging out and, oh no, I wake up this one morning 
And I hear like something as clear as day, as soon as I open my eyes, it says, you should go to Portugal next year. Just like that. That same day, my car breaks down on the freeway. Find out I have AAA. I'm towed to some yard. At that yard, I start talking to this lady who I look at and I was like, I was thinking maybe about living in Portugal next year. She says, I know a company that'll help you live abroad for a year. I contact the company, have a meeting with them. They tell me it's 5,000 bucks a month. I'm like, that is craziness. Who can afford that? They're like a lot of people. So then I realized, okay, it's possible. And then January 2020, I was going through some stuff. I separated from this person. I was dealing with a lot of things for myself, namely guilt. And I watched Inception. I set an intention every year. And the intention that year was forgiveness. And so I watched Inception. And Elliot Page says to, what's his face, DiCaprio. She says, hey, the reason why your wife keeps popping up in these things is because guilt is a way that people control us. So then I understand that. So then afterwards, I finally unpack my apartment, January 7th, and I think, ha, 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 how funny is it if I would have to leave after unpacking it? February 7th, I'm in Las Vegas. I have the stream and the stream. For some reason, the cops are in there. I've never been in trouble with the cops. And I just see it as a, t a sign to leave. So I start selling my things, and I decide to leave. March 7th, I get rid of all my stuff. Coincidentally, I had to call the cops the last day I was in my apartment. And just like the dream, they didn't believe me. So then after that, as I walk out of my apartment that day, I have this thought that I've never really understood what faith is, right? And I have this thought of trying to understand what faith is as it looks up and faith as it looks down into myself, right? And so from there, that's where the intuition got really serious. Because what started to happen after that was I didn't necessarily expect anything in the world to happen a particular way. I just kept myself open to the things that could happen because what I thought was a good life, it ended, ended me up at a dead end. And I thought, what happens if you live a life just based on like instinct and feeling? Of course, thought goes into it, right? Like we're not nomadic people living on the plains, but it's like, you know, I, I really thought to myself, what happens if a person can feel things out? Really, rationally, feel, feel things out, feel where you should stay, feel who your friends should be, feel all these things. And it just turns out that this thing that I started doing just mainly like as a different way of survival, it turns out it's a powerful thing to do. Because I think the one thing human beings always try and do, sorry for a long drawn out answer, is a lot of the reason why we lack compassion and lack under other things is because we try and control seven outcomes down the line when we can only control one. You know what I'm saying? So that I is think true. It, so I appreciate the thing about emotional intelligence and all that. I'll tell you, I'm kind of an emotional like dummy sometimes, you know, like not to be too self-disparaging, but like a lot of the time I just don't see things in the way that a rational, reasonable person does. But at the same time, I think there's a lot to say about feeling things out and doing what you feel to be right. And I think that's where it comes from, you know? Yeah. I yes. And I like that realm of control, like acknowledging what your realm of control is and not dwelling on what you cannot control, because I feel like that's a hole that a lot of us fall into is, and I, especially me, if you have anxiety, if you're a person who suffers with anxiety which is i think most people yeah uh like it's a very real thing where you just stress about so many things and 
really just if you can get yourself focused on what can I control in this moment, what is in my realm of control? Like that would alleviate so much anxiety. I think yeah, that's a... I, I think I think the thing with control is ultimately I, I had a friend of mine in Idaho talk to me about this dimension theory, and I still don't know much about it. He said that God exists in 10 dimensions, right? And there's other things that exist in other dimensions, and we exist in the third dimension, right? So uh, I don't know if, you know, if I, maybe I'll share a little bit, but I've been reading a lot about psilocybin and the effects on people with post-traumatic stress and the effects of people who've gone through significant trauma, and the fact that like one dose of that will alleviate a lot of what people go through. And what I've found for myself, because I hope my mom doesn't hear this, is I tried psilocybin last year and it recalibrated everything I am. Here's where it gets interesting. The thing that's of note is I feel as though that dimensional theory relates so much with who it is that we are. The reason why I say that is because anytime you feel as though you're crossing into the fourth dimension, like you feel like something is happening to you to make you phase over, I think you realize that we are only in control of things that exist that we can touch and attack to. Like that's the power of our dimension, it's just touching things. Like a face card exists in a two dimension, they can't touch things, but we can. And I think that simply has me understand control really, really well, because I've struggled with anxiety as well. So when I realized that, you know, people say all these things like the present, that really doesn't resonate with me. But what does resonate with me is the idea that we can touch particular things. And if all I can do is touch things and all I can do is the effect of the things that my hands will create, whether it's messaging a person, whether it's writing an email I'm supposed to, whether it's not procrastinating to do this, if all I can do is just that, then I might as well become very, very good at that. And I've realized too that worry is a completely wholly ineffective thing because 90% of the time or 99% of the time, if you really be honest with yourself, the things that you worry about, they never happen. Like the outcomes that you really, really weigh never happen. And the older you get, the more that you can take those experiences seriously. The more that you can take those experiences seriously to say, why is it that every time I'm worried about a thing happening, that it doesn't necessarily happen, right? So on the one hand, it's also understanding who we are in the world and the fact that as human beings, we really don't have control of the future. We don't have control of time. We can't teleport. We can't do anything. Like we're kind of uncool. Like the coolest thing about us is what's happening on the inside and the fact that we have personalities and souls. But other than that, in terms of like anything that could give us any semblance of control that is legitimate, we don't have any of those tools. So it's just like, let it go. Like what's the point? Do you know what I mean? Like the psilocybin point is simply to tell you that like, even that, even something that is notably good for like good for people with significant traumas or whatever, even that doesn't do anything. There is nothing that currently exists that does anything for you that can perceptively create an impression of control. So it's just like, let it go. Like what's, you know, it's the worst that can happen. You can keep living your life as is, or you can try and make your life a little bit better. You know what I mean? Yeah, I feel like I just went on a little bit of a trip myself there. I was like, ooh, <laughs> dimensions. I was a yeah. little bit I was a little I, bit on a trip there, I think. <laughs> I, I mean, here's what's interesting about the whole thing of dimensions is in the tenth dimension, I'll give you a little teaser. It's just time. Imagine that there's a being that sees through time. Like that that's really it. Like 
I feel like all that dimensions are an excuse for is to say that you can perceive more things than we can currently perceive. You know, I, I read this paper recent, well, not recently, it was like two years ago, about how our planet and most of the universe is held up by dark matter. So all around you is all this dark matter. It could be little pockets. And there's this, there's this, there's this actual physicist-like theory that dark matter is holding this whole thing together. Now, just imagine if you could get into whatever dimension it is that makes you see the whole, like the world with dark matter. The whole planet might be Swiss cheese. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like everything we, we see and perceive might just be like with holes, you know, except for maybe us, I don't know. But maybe you could be like dark matter holding the whole thing up. You know what I'm saying? So that's it's fascinating. <laughs> All right. So while I'm talking about your rad black kids, which is your clothing brand, what motivates, I guess this is kind of like, this is also about life. What motivates you to get up every morning, Tulani? Are you driven by relationships, money, success? What motivates you? I started the rad black kids and I called it that because I couldn't find a job. I graduated top of my class. I moved to LA. I studied sustainables and while Obama was president. And I couldn't even land an interview. And I was reading all these papers about people with non-American sounding names who struggle to find jobs. And it was a very dark time. And I realized in that time that I'm not the only person that goes through this. And the name, the rat black kids, actually, it was the cool black kids, but there's a rap group called cool, cool kids. And, you know, trademark is a hell of a thing. But like, I came up with the name because I was thinking about there are other black people who go through this exact same thing and none of us should. So the whole idea from the start was, let me talk about who it is and let me show who it is that I am in such a singular lens that maybe other people will hop along because I believe that there's other people there. Right, like, let me talk about myself in this lens that's not mainstream, that's not contemporary, the lens that's not thrust in front of us of what young black people are like, namely young black men are like. And so that was the idea. And so the thing that keeps me going till today is that there's a guy I met once, there's two stories that have really moved me. There's been a few, but two of the most notable was I did a pop-up in Oakland and this older black gentleman walks up to me and says, you know, this is the first time I've seen a black kid on a t-shirt. That was number one. Number two was when I was building uh, skateboards, there was a, a mom who contacted me on Christmas Eve and I was done building. I was living in LA. I was done building for the season. And she asked me to build her a longboard on Christmas Eve. And I found the parts, built it, and I dropped it off with her mother at a gas station in Compton. And the mother told me about how it was for her grandson and how the grandson went to Compton High School. He had had his longboard that he built be robbed out of his locker. And she says to me, this is the next best thing. And so the thing that keeps me going is the fact that I get to create product and it's just product, but I get to create product that positively affects the way it's a it's a dual fold thing, but it positively affects my community. And it affects my community because a lot of people see what's possible. And and that for me is 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 why I keep going every day. 
you know, I used to, when I was younger, pray for ultimate sums of money, but I stopped doing that. I think when I started kind of just, you know, focusing on, you know, that, that faith element, right? That faith in whatever's out here and that faith in whatever's down here. And so, yeah, that's really, that's really it. I guess hand in hand with that, what is your proudest accomplishment so far in life and with the rad black kids? What's your proudest accomplishment? I think, I, I think the proudest one, there's a few standout moments, right? That you think it would be maybe when this musician wore these on stage, right? Or the, one of the ones that's up there is when I used to go to school in New York, I didn't study fashion. And I walked into Bloomingdale's in Soho and I stared up once and I was like, this is amazing. And I never thought I'd be making products that were in that store. So last year, walked into the store, looked around and I knew my products were in there and I didn't know they were gonna be in that store. And I walked downstairs and I see my stuff. And that was crazy. Like that was, that was legitimately like, I can't say I manifested that. But it was legitimately like, bro, like, that's wild, you know? I mean, another one that I've, I, I mean, I've had these moments that have really been like, I don't know. I think the my proudest one was designing a shoe. When we were in Zimbabwe, when we were kids, my mom bought us Nikes in 1997 from Amsterdam. Don't know what the name was. I, I really regret that. I'd like to get them again. And she got us those shoes. And right before that, I'd seen George of the Jungle, where he picks up the 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 air more up tempo that says air on the side. That's where I fell in love with shoes. And later that year, I got this pair of Nikes, and I would sit around and I would draw the shoes, you know. And I remember when I started the shoe journey, I drew this pair of shoes, and it took me ten days or something. Like now, it's like a day, like an hour. Took me 10 days to just draw the shoe out. And I remember seeing it for the first time and holding it and just laughing, you know? And I had a consultant at the time, I didn't speak that much Portuguese. And and the guy asked the consultant, like, what is he laughing at? And she's like, I think he's happy. And and I was, and it's, that is like a thing I, I experience multiple times a year. Like making a thing and seeing a thing is a hell of a thing. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, totally. And I think those are cool things. I remember being in New York City and saying to my daughter, like, we got to go into Bloomingdale's. We got to go into wherever because Tuani's lines here. And I kind of want to see the, I absolutely want to see his work in like oh, it's like his it. his dreams coming to fruition because i remember being a 19 i don't know how old we were 18 19 year old kids talking about these dreams these big ideas like what if what if what if and like it was amazing and powerful that you made this happen like here are your dreams coming to fruition like things that we just talked about things that we just dreamed about and they were coming to fruition so that's pretty cool life pretty is cool life is is I can't, I can't tell you, like, it's, it's, it's crazy, you know, it's just like, I, I think the thing that I've realized about dreaming is, is you hope that it's infectious. You want it to be infectious, but the whole thing of like getting more successful, whatever that means, is synthesizing that story to be a, articulate as possible 
to a person who could be sitting in southeastern Idaho who could believe that they could do it too. Because like everything that I've done is kind of like a really, really lame blueprint that took a very long time. And it isn't as cool and as sexy as I just made a share and I began. It's like, it's really like, it's, it's, it's making a thing, feeling a thing, pain, making a thing, feeling a thing, pain. And so it's just like, it takes a long time. But I think the power of doing that is hoping that it infects someone to believe that they can do the thing too. Yeah. And going back to the quote, it's not being afraid of change. You know, if you really want those things to come to fruition that you dream of, you have, you can't be afraid of change. You have to be willing to venture out of that little pond that you're in. If you ever want to know there's such a thing as an ocean, such a thing as a sea, you have to be willing to jump out of that little pond. Yeah. And and you know what I realized is I was in Japan on a bus. I was in Osaka. I could make it through Tokyo fine, but Osaka already in town. I couldn't communicate with people. I don't speak Japanese. I mean, I know like some things, but nothing crazy. And this lady looks at me in the bus and she, she says something. She smiles. I don't know what the hell this lady's saying. But the thing that was crazy was I look over and someone pops their head out of nowhere and she says, oh, you look very nice. And you look like you're a kind man. And I thought that that was such a sweet thing. And I realized anywhere I go in the world, anywhere, right? I did a road trip through Botswana once, right? So I'm driving through Botswana and, and I remember I handed this kid a dollar as a tip, a US dollar. And I, I watched him like look at it and I realized like in, in the synthesis, and, and it's not because it was a lot of money, maybe he hadn't seen US currency. I don't know what it is, but I, I realized in the synthesis of things that the human experience is exactly the same no matter where you go. The, the problem with the fear of change is you're making your experience be so diminutive that you don't believe that someone can fly from the other side of the world, go to Southeast Idaho and be completely fascinated with who you are. So it's like understanding that like the one thing that makes change a lot easier is there's a real wonderment to like a lot of human beings. Like a lot of people can meet other people and experience other things that'll feel uniquely similar, right? I was driving through Romania and I watched these guys like riding this cart with the donkey pulling it on the front. I've seen people in Zimbabwe doing the same thing. But that guy in Romania and that guy in Zimbabwe may not know that they're both doing the exact same thing. You know what I'm saying? So it's like, I don't know. Change is nothing to fear. Yeah. There's a lot of common elements to the human experience, no matter where you are. Yeah. All right. So before we close up, because I have to run children to school before we close up, I want I want to know how can listeners, anyone who hears this support you and your work? Um, The best thing to do is, uh, well, there's a few ways of doing it. Number one is go to the website, check out the stuff. If you feel so inclined by the stuff, um, there's a there's a a code uh, that I that well, you'll. There's a code. If anyone anyone who listens to us use this code M A T E S, it'll give you a a, a, a homey discount. But um, I think one thing that I'm I'm really worried about now is th- this seems to be this is very different from the world. This is very different from the world that we lived in when we were kids. Like even in Idaho, I feel like there was a strong sentiment at like understanding, you know past tolerance. Um, I think tolerance is kind of an outdated idea. And I think one way that people can support me 
is support people like me, support people who are different from you. Like that's one thing that Jordan and I had in common is that we were from completely different ways of life, but our friendship was a good friendship. It was a strong friendship. It was a friendship I value a lot. And we just accepted the fact that each other was different and it was still okay. And I think one big thing that's happening in my life now and the type of people I'm working with are people who are cognizant of what it is that I'm trying to do, which is have people accept someone that is different from you. Have a conversation with someone that's different from you. you know, just sit down, talk to them, find out what are they worried about? What are they thinking about? What are they concerned about? What, what do they have to eat today? What makes what they had to eat today a little bit different? Just talk to somebody that's different from you. Because what, what you'll find in that is that not only is there a lot of commonality, which is what's crazy with us, right? Dashboard confessional. Like not only is there not a, a lot of commonality, but there's also this, this thing where you'll find that another person who you presume is very different from you is very same to you. And, you know, we got to live in a time one day where people aren't necessarily worried to look the way that they do, you know, in terms of fear of violence or retribution or whatever. And that goes for everybody, not just race, uh, gender, uh, sexuality. Like people need to be feel free to have as many liberties as everyone else does. I agree with you so much. And I'm taking that as the takeaway for this episode, because what you just said is everything our listeners need to learn from this episode to take away from it, you know, I learn so. about other people. But yeah. we have to do my closing ritual because I always do a ritual at the end of every episode in my my high schooler. I have to get her to high school and she's having her own anxiety right now because she's worried about being late. Okay. And my ritual at the end of every episode is I have my list or my interviewee, my co host, whatever, put your hands on your chest so you can feel the weight there and repeat after me. I matter. I matter. I am loved. I am loved. I am enough. I am enough. Oh, I like that. That's beautiful. Thank you. Thank you so much for being here, T. I really appreciate it. I loved a chance to catch up with you. Um, that was nice. Everybody go out there, use that code, check out the radblackkids.com. And more than anything, don't be afraid of change. Don't be afraid of what is different. Be loving. Use the lens of compassion. Thank you so much for being here, T. Thanks, Jody. Appreciate it. Mm -hmm. Bye.